You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Today's podcast is brought to you by California Cryobank. California Cryobank has 45 years of experience and a diverse selection of hundreds of highly screened sperm donors. They maintain the highest quality standards to give clients the best possible opportunity for a successful pregnancy with a client services team that supports you along the way. California Cryobank is offering Fertility Docs Uncensored listeners a special offer of a free level two subscription worth $145, which is a free 90-day subscription for access to extended donor profiles, including adult and childhood photos. Just use the code DOCS, that's D-O-C-S, at cryobank.com to find the right donor for you. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. And today I'm joined by my co-host and lovely, wonderful, talented friends, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Good morning. And Dr. Carrie Bedian from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hi. How are you guys doing? We're great. Great. We have a friend with us today. Oh, we do have a friend with us today. We have John Whitney, and he is the Ovation Director of Storage. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later on. But as we came on in our Zoom video link here, we noticed in the background that John has all these statues with horses. They're trophies. And that is a legit, not trophy case, but like display. I mean, there's there's some very fancy looking. They're beautiful. So John, tell us this interesting factoid you just told us. We we're very impressed by it. I show American Quarter Horses on the American Quarter Horse Circuit. So I show nationally from Florida to Arizona to Ohio about once or twice a month. That keeps wow. you busy. It does. It does. And so the way that the cycle works is that you work all year towards your fall championship shows. So there are two major horse shows, one in Columbus, Ohio, called the All-American Quarter Horse Congress. And then there is the World Show. And so those are the two major titles that you are trying to go for every year. There's also the NSBA World Show that you work for as well. So what makes an award-winning horse? Like, is this a talent competition? Is this a beauty competition? Like, what is the basis of this? So if you go back to, you know, the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, you had to evaluate horses for breeding purposes. And so the best way to evaluate them is in a show pen where you can evaluate all of them per class or a discipline. And it's kind of grown from there. So today, there are specific classes that you enter in that have rules surrounding the class. There are classes for amateurs, which is what I am, and then a class for professionals, which would be the open. And then you are judged in that class per those rules for it. So there's a multitude of classes I show in three of those classes. Yeah, you just show. I just like to say that when you sit here and talk about horse showing, I'm pretty sure this is the way my patients feel when I sit there and start talking about IVF. I am like already (laughs) completely like overwhelmed and I'm like, there's so many questions going through my brain that I can't even like... I can't even start to compliment Hend how to ask them because there are so many that I have, like starting with, well, who decided for a quarter horse? Is there an eighth of a horse? Is there a half horse shores shows? They, like- <laughs> the quarter horse is actually the world's largest single breed. And it was really? bred to run a quarter mile faster than thoroughbreds because thoroughbreds were like the predominant breed that came out. And so the See, quarter horses have racing associated with it, but I don't race. So, so having lived in Louisville, Kentucky, John, that's what I was thinking. I'm like, 
Yeah. What's the difference between the horses we see in the Kentucky Derby and the Tennessee walking horses that are yep. their, you know yep. world famous areas in Shelbyville, Tennessee, which is in yep. our, we have many patients and workers from Shelbyville. So like what makes quarter horses different? I mean, just a different breed and they're, they, you look at different things in that breed or? Yeah. So it's kind of like everything form to function. So all, if you look at true horses, everything is form to function. So if you go to Europe, a lot of Europeans have warm bloods, which are light breed horses. So thoroughbreds with draft horses, and they've been breeding them to jump and to do Olympic level mm. sports events or dressage. So you keep breeding them for that. So there's that whole gotcha. round I love it. that word, by the way, dressage. Yeah, dressage. dressage. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the foundation of all riding. So everything that we do is all dressage based because that's just fundamental riding, no matter what saddle type, what discipline you do. And then you branch off into racehorses, which are bred just to go fast in a circle. And gotcha. then there's a whole breeding for that. Then you have the American West that happened and people needed horses to function as at home for working. And so then you got the quarter horse that needed to go to a race pen, but if they didn't work out there, we needed to breed them or have them for working cow horses or cowboy horses or cattle, do things on the ranch. Now, when you do things on the ranch, how do you know which one's the best? You're going to have a subsect of horses that go around in a circle and you watch how they move because good moving horses are smoother to ride. They stay sounder for longer. They're healthier animals. So now you have movement-based classes like a pleasure hmm. class see how the horse moves. Then you have a whole slate of classes for that. And then you have, well, how good can you ride as an amateur? Can you execute a pattern effortlessly and communicate with your horse without the horse showing any adversities or any anger or anything with it? So then you have horsemanship classes, which is what I show in, which is you go in and you do a pattern and you get to see how well you can accomplish it. Then you have obstacle courses, which is trail. How do you go over obstacles? How does the horse navigate? So it just kind of perpetuates from that. Wow. This is so, so been, cool. Have you been doing this since you were a little kid? I was introduced to horses at like eight or nine. And then I started really showing in high school. So I was about 15. So I've been doing it since I've been 15. Do you live on a ranch? Like, do you, no, or do you no. rent a stable? Like how, how does this It's work? expensive, no. isn't it? It's extremely expensive. Yes. I ended up going to college, the Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, and I brought my horse with me and couldn't afford it. So the only way to afford it was I lived in a barn in college. So I legitimately lived in a barn. You had to go outside and upstairs to go uh, to the bathroom and work. I worked So where, where was day. this? This was in California, you said? California. Yep. Just north of Santa Barbara. San Luis Obispo, right? San Luis Obispo. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I cleaned stalls, about 45 stalls twice a week to pay off my rent and my horse's <laughs> board. And then I worked every single day feeding and blanketing the horses. There's um, The ranch had about 175. So it was quite, quite Ooh. a big undertaking. On wow. top of my... I actually worked about 28 to 32 hours a week in a deli. And so, yeah. So I did the whole ranch life. I'll never do that again. That's oh, a crap wow. ton of work in the midst of college plus Working yes. to support yourself. It was. I um, learned to self-navigate back then. So my major classes, I was always an A student in animal science, but my general education definitely was not always A's. So you had a <laughs> you had a you had a flip. You know, like was it English or was it you know the advanced reproductive class? It was an advanced reproductive class that got my attention. So John, um, I'll have to tell you a side note. I had a friend when I was in residency. She was in residency with me at Florida, and I got an emergency call from the lab on a Saturday morning that this doctor has this low glucose level of like 20 or something, which, you know, you'd be near death if you had that. So she was one of my fellow residents and she was not on call. She was at home and I called her up and I'm like, 
Lisa, what's going on with this blood? What, what, what's the deal with your blood? She goes, oh, that was actually my horse's blood. And it sat in my car for a couple of days. <laughs> so she, she ran her horse's blood at the lab because she was worried about her horse. <laughs> I mean, I would do it. If I had access to a lab, I'd be running tests all the time as much as I possibly could. <laughs> I was going to say, so Susan, do we have a question of the day? Because otherwise I, this is going to turn I know, into I a ask podcast. I can see the list of questions in all three of our eyes mm-hmm. that we want to ask John. Of, well, what about this? And what about this? But we should also attend to the other questions that we have too. <laughs> we do. We do. We have a question of the day. So our question today is, hi, I'm a weekly listener of the podcast and love the show. I have two daughters who are almost three and five, which we conceived our first month trying. I was nursing my oldest when I became pregnant with the second. So I never had a period. So I had an almost five-year gap without a period due to pregnancy and nursing. I stopped taking the Camilla mini pill and tried for a third in December of 2020 and started her period the following month and has been very regular for the following year. Normally cycles 31 to 33 days, but provider went to check her progesterone twice, one week after ovulation, and both results were in the quote normal range. The only value that has been below normal is testosterone, but she wasn't concerned. We had my husband tested as well as his results were in the normal range. My question is, where should I go from here? Is it possible my tubes could be blocked even though I had textbook vaginal births? Um, Would you recommend an HSG or other tests for my next step? I know a year isn't a long time compared to many couples' fertility journeys, but this has been very unusual given our history. Thank you. So yeah, get the full workup. I mean, you've had the basic things done. So time to move on and time to get the whole thorough workup done. Get your tubes tested. Make sure the inside of the uterus doesn't have any scar tissue. That's something, especially after a vaginal birth, it's unlikely, but it's certainly possible. Check for polyps and fibroids because those can develop over the course of time. Make sure that all the blood work is squeaky clean. Like Make sure ovarian reserve testing is normal. I mean, that's one thing you you didn't specifically mention, but realize that there's both quality and quantity that need to be checked. Um, So that's something, you know, you're not quite as young as you were five or six years ago. So yeah, and even though it's secondary infertility, I mean, still the reality of it is if you want a baby and it's been a little while and you've kind of had the basics done, you know, you may never figure out what the problem is. You may just need to move forward potentially into doing treatment if you don't figure out what it is and and you want another baby because time is going by fast for all of us. So any last things to add about that question before we move on? I think it's actually a good segue into what we're going to talk about today. I was thinking Mm -hmm. the same thing. So as I said earlier, we have John Whitney, who is the Ovation Director of Storage. He was saying that even though he has a very specialized niche within ovation, that he's sort of the guy that a lot of his friends talk to about fertility. And so today, what we're going to talk about is really how to take the first steps toward infertility care, Um, you know, talking about finances and just kind of all the different steps and tests that we may want to do. And, And John's going to start us out with that. So John, you were telling us when we were kind of discussing, all right, what do we do? Like your intro of what happens to you twice a month with your various <laughs> friends? Like, Yeah, I think it'll be interesting for, I think maybe you and the audience to hear, um, or a lot of people are sitting there, but they don't see fertility as something that deserves treatment. And it's so far from my brain 
because I say, if you went to your primary care and they found a heart condition, would you continually go to your primary care physician to treat your heart? And then would you have your primary care physician do open heart surgery on you? No, you don't. You go to specialists. If you have something that's happening in your brain, primary cares always refer you out. Your OB is, while they may be great, they may not be the right place for you. So if you've hit that milestone of six months, a year, or you really just want to go ahead and get some treatment, you are deserving of treatment and you need to start with an infertility physician. Like that's what you have to do. So that's a big hurdle. Do you guys see that when people come to you as well? We see that a lot. We have some OBGYNs who have a lot of interest in fertility care. And sometimes patients can stick with those people for a little while and, and it's completely fine. And then we have other doctors who it's really not something that they have a lot of interest in. But I think that it definitely is a place where patients should be one of their own best advocates in that, you know, if you've tried something with your OB-GYN for probably three or four months, if you haven't been successful in that time period, I would recommend going and seeing a fertility specialist. One of my clinics I go to is three hours away from where I normally are. So we completely understand that logistically, especially in a country as big as the United States, there's some people who don't have fertility care very closely, but realize one of the benefits of COVID-19 hitting the United States is that telemedicine has really opened doors. I mean, I saw somebody just the other day from West Virginia who um, is interested in getting care. And she's like, you know, I'm going to have to drive or fly no matter where I am. So I want to come to you. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I find that many times is the hurdle because many patients think isn't there just a test that you can do to tell me so that I can correct one thing, you know, or there isn't there just like one thing that I'll go to that every physician knows how to order to give me the answer to why I'm not getting pregnant. You know, there's a lot of psychology that I like try to think about, like, why do we believe so much in science that it has the magical answer for everything when we are such complex, everything else in our life, like, our bodies are so complex. Why does fertility or why do people think that there's always just one little answer, either one pill, one test, one something to do? Yeah, one thing I, I tell my patients a lot, because we do have a lot of patients that kind of come in and go, well, okay, if you can just tell me what the problem is, then we can fix it. And, you know, as we all know, science is not quite that black and white. And I, I went to ASRM, our, their, our fertility meeting a few years ago. And I remember there was someone that spoke there and you guys may remember her. And she spent her whole 25-year career on what happens in the first 24 hours when the sperm and the egg go together, when fertilization is taking place and all the different steps and enzymatic processes. And, you know, I tell patients, there's probably thousands of things that have to happen, millions of things that have to happen for an egg and a sperm to get together and for implantation to take place. And so for us to think that we can just, and me included, think that we can just do one or two tests or three tests and figure out what the problem is, is a little bit naive. And, you know, sometimes it's more than one thing. It's one thing layered upon another thing, layered upon another thing. So sometimes it can be really challenging. And I think for a subset of patients, I think that's really frustrating for them to go, well, I may come to you and yet you're not going to tell me what the problem is. That's my very first thing that I tell people. You are deserving of treatment. You deserve to go and get it. And it's not going to be terribly expensive. So this is when you now need to learn how to self-navigate your medical insurance. 
And I just would like to broadcast to everybody, you are your advocate when it comes to insurance, as well as your treatment and what you need to do. You just need to know what it is. And so you need to either work with your OB and work with your fertility physician group to see how to maximize. Can you run certain blood work under your insurance? Can you find what your insurance can best maximize so that at least you can go to a specialist and get a diagnostic workup done that is cost aware, utilizing your benefits, but at least you can know what's going on. And you would go to a fertility specialist, just at least know what's going on. You don't have to commit to IVF. You don't have to commit to IUI. You don't have to do anything. You at least know basically where you're at. So I guess what I would like to hear from you guys is what would be that? So when they come, I think a lot of people, well, what what would I get? So I'm going to come, I'm willing to spend whatever <laughs> it takes on the very first visit. What would be my first like kind of like workup? What would I need to expect on that first day? So a lot of things can be ordered by your general OBGYN. And sometimes it's more cost effective to do that because it'll be covered ordered by, when it's ordered by them, but not by us. Right. And so an HSG tube test and sperm test, those are the two without a doubt, because if those two things are significantly abnormal, one, the other, or both, then you have you have an answer, crap, I need treatment. And, and you can shortcut a lot of the mental space that you have to go through. The other things are general blood work. I'm going to interrupt real quick. And what Carrie is saying about especially the tube test and the sperm test is that if either of those are abnormal in your with your OB-GYN, those are things that are definitely need, going to need to be addressed by a reproductive endocrinologist. So you're not going to spend three months doing Clomid or Femara with your OB-GYN. Whereas if those two are normal and maybe you're just not ovulating on a regular basis, sometimes your OB-GYN can take over from there. So you get those two things done. You get your basic lab work done. Are you diabetic? Do you have thyroid problems? Do you have anemia, any infections? Those types of things. And then after that, you start to get into more nuanced tests that usually the fertility docs are going to order, but the generalists are not. And that's looking at the inside of the uterus. And that's looking at ovarian reserve testing. The generalists can do some of the ovarian reserve testing, but not all of it. They can usually order an AMH pretty quickly. It's harder to get an accurate follicle count, which is based on an ultrasound sound, even if you have the ultrasound done, it, that needs to be read by somebody who is looking for that specific egg count, because that is not an intuitive, easy, taught everywhere kind of skill. And the day three testing can also be harder to navigate just because you're at the mercy of a general laboratory, not a fertility laboratory. The fertility laboratory is going to be open all the time because they know they need this time-specific result. A general laboratory, it's going to be a pain in the neck because you're going to have to schedule six weeks in advance. And that's not realistic when you're doing this kind of timing. One other thing to think about too, and I'm certainly not an insurance expert, but I've talked to patients enough about it that I feel like I'm getting to be that way. You know, younger patients that are pretty healthy, a lot of times take insurance plans where they have a really high deductible. And again, I'm not an insurance person, but what that means is if you have a $5,000 deductible plan, whether you have insurance coverage or not, you pay the first $5,000 out of pocket until you meet that deductible. And so a lot of people don't understand. They'll say, well, I have fertility testing coverage. And I'll say, well, yes, you do. But you, you, know, you haven't spent that first $5,000 yet before your insurance kicks in. So kind of going back to what John said before, you know, the advice he gives to his friends is it's a really good idea to be your advocate and look at your insurance. And, you know, maybe if you think you're going to be looking at fertility treatment in the next year or so, maybe you take a plan that's a little bit more expensive with a lower deductible. So 
that you have better coverage for these sorts of things. And I know in our state, we have a lot of plans that do cover fertility testing. They may not cover treatment and treatment. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But a lot of things that Carrie just talked about were mainly fertility testing, trying to figure out what the problem is. So like ultrasounds, HSGs, sperm tests, those sorts of things are considered as fertility testing. You hit it right on the head when you said ovarian reserve. And that's kind of where I go with most of the people I'm talking about. Because if you are not achieving pregnancy at the rate that you want, or you feel that you need fertility treatment, that ovarian reserve to me is crucial. So everybody knows I was an embryologist you know, for a decade in the laboratory. I have seen more things that surprise me that you caught with ovarian reserve testing at the right age and that it is wise to spend the money if it's not going to get some testing done on your ovarian reserve. So John, what do you mean by ovarian reserve testing? Why is that so important? What, what does that mean? Unfortunately, with IVF, everything is numbers-based. That's so even, just but the even way with that fertility, it is. Even with just general fertility, why is, that, why is ovarian reserve so important? Well, if you're 28 and you go in and you all of a sudden realize that your ovarian reserve is exceptionally low, your egg pool, like how many eggs do you currently have? Do your ovaries produce what we would expect a 28-year-old to produce or not? If they don't, you're going to have to really come to terms and start to make some decisions. So the other caveat that I get a lot of people asking me a ton, which is egg freezing. Should I freeze my eggs? You know, like what is it that I need to do? And I surprisingly have very different statements for very different groups of people. If you are basically 32, 33, 34, 35, if you're creeping up there, my answer is go get ovarian reserve testing done. Let's see what your ovarian reserve has. And then let's discuss the difference between egg freezing and embryo freezing. Because embryo freezing may be significantly more beneficial for you in the long term than egg freezing is. Because egg freezing is just freezing one cycle of eggs. It is not freezing your fertility today. Just freezing that one cycle that we got. And embryo freezing gives you significantly higher odds and knowing exactly what happens for you in the future. I'm going to caveat because I'm very much a feminist about this this standpoint. I think that when we talk to women that are in 38, 39, 40, 41, 42 that are looking at egg freezing, they're looking at preserving the right for a future uh, spouse to be able to be the father of their child. And that is a great idea. But egg freezing in that age group is not the same as it is in a younger age group, you would be far beneficial to do embryo freezing in that age group. So that 38, 39, 40, 41 may uh, have to deal with embryo donation or egg donation in the future. When we look at someone who is going through the IVF process in general, whether we're going to do egg freezing or embryo freezing, realize that at each part of the process, we lose numbers. So first of all, we start off with your number of follicles. Follicles are those little fluid-filled sacs in your ovaries that contain the eggs. Not every follicle is going to contain an egg that we can get. Okay. So then we can get those eggs and we can either cryopreserve or freeze them at that moment or we can fertilize them, create embryos and let them grow out. Now, when you go from eggs to find out how many are fertilized, you're usually going to lose some there. And then from fertilization to day five, six or seven, the point where they can either be cryopreserved, biopsied and cryopreserved, you're going to lose. Usually you're going to, from fertilization to the point of biopsy or cryopreservation, you're going to get about a third of the number you started out at fertilization. So you're losing numbers. 
years. And so when you're trying to plan for the future, what John is trying to say, I think, is if you know you have two chromosomally normal embryos, the chances of you taking home a baby out of one of those two are pretty darn good. Whereas if you freeze eggs, you don't know what that attrition rate is going to necessarily be for yourself. And the older you are, the more attrition we see, and you're generally going to start off with a lower number of eggs. And so when we're trying to advise our patients for what is the best way that you can feel comfortable in your future, that you're going to be able to be a biologic parent, that sometimes that's where the embryo can give you that more reassurance. Now, some people don't want to create embryos with donor sperm or something like that. And in that case, you know, really going into the fertility preservation process of thinking of this is probably not going to be a one and done cycle type of thing is something to keep in mind. And I think if this is all going woo over your head, it speaks to seek treatment right? (laughs) Go to somebody that can help navigate some of this for you. And I think that's kind of where I go in these conversations is, does this sound like a lot? Is this sounding a little bit overwhelming? Well, here's the good news. And I speak because I am a millennial and I speak with a lot of people that are millennials. All the information is out there for you. Nobody is holding you to the fire to make decisions. And we now have physicians, laboratories, groups that are incredibly transparent and honest about what you can expect out of all of these different types of treatments. Now you can be better educated and make a decision, not go blindly and say, I just want to get pregnant. But now you can know what to do and and how to do. If you are 38 with a low ovarian reserve, your physician is going to give you different options with different results and different ways to self-navigate knowing who you are and what is best for you. So John, you had a really interesting observation of what a physician should be able to do for you as a patient earlier that is actually really refreshing to hear because <laughs> we don't often hear that perspective. But what, what do you think that a patient's physician should be able to tell them? Everybody that I talk to, kind of at the end, um, I let them know that fertility is fraught with bad news. It just is. There's just, you're going to get some bad news. Even when you get a great cycle, nothing is ever 100%. Nothing is like we predicted, you know, 10 eggs, we got 10 eggs, we predicted 10 fertilized, you got 10 fertilized, we predicted, uh, you know, eight embryos, you got eight embryos, we predicted four normals, you got four normals, we predicted one. Nothing happens that way. It never does. You will always get bad results. And so you need to find a clinic as well as a physician partner that you feel comfortable getting that bad news from that you can get information from them and that you know that you are going to be okay hearing it from them. I choose my general practitioner the same way for the way that they convey my blood work and and who they are and how they work with me. I have a specific personality type that I have in the way that I like my analytical results given. It's the same thing when you go and you seek out your physician. You need to make sure when you have that consult, can this person in front of me give me news that is really going to affect me in a way that I can handle it? Yeah, I think as humans, we always expect that we're going to do better than what the average person does. And I think it, which is good. We're all, a lot of us are optimistic, but you're exactly right. I think, you know, what I try to do, and, and I'm sure what Carrie and Susan try and do is we always try and kind of set our patients' expectations appropriately, because if they get 15 eggs and they only have two or three normal embryos, they look at that and go, 
what happened? Why did why did that happen? And that's kind of normal, you know. That's as good about as good as it gets for a lot of patients. And so I think it's really important, like you said, to really set expectations and just really make sure that you gel with the person who's giving you that information. From the laboratory perspective, sometimes in the laboratory we'll say, well, they're they're here for, for treatment. Like we just saw their treatment. So you have a very young patient with everything on paper looks great and the fertilization was really poor. Okay. Great. We don't have no embryos. We're going to get to embryos and we're going to get it. But that one piece of bad information, maybe that was somewhat diagnostic. Maybe mm-hmm. we just learned something about you. Maybe the reason why you are here today is because every month with one egg, you have a fertilization. There's something that's going on. And I wish as a scientist and as an embryologist, I wish I could tell you what it was, but we don't know everything yet. We just know one piece. And so even though that is bad news, it can also be seen as diagnostic news. It is more information. And so when you go through this treatment, like you want a doctor that you can hear that from and that you know that they know that it's working with them and that they're working together on your treatment. And that relationship, both with the clinic and how the clinic is for scheduling appointments and coming in and doing it, as well as who your doctor is to actually give you those news. You want to make sure that you work, that your personality type meets their personality type. Because if it doesn't, you're going to have a great physician and you're going to have a great clinic, but you're going to have not the treatment that you want. I think that's so important. And the nice thing is that there are lots of personalities who are reproductive endocrinologists. There's lots of different clinic types. You know, there are some clinics that are much more hands-on, touchy-feely, kind of get-to-know-you type of place. There are some that are much more what I would consider a machine. And there are some people who are going to thrive in one or the other environment. And knowing which type of environment you do better in, you know, there's some people who want fertility medicine to be very transactional. There's others that want it to be much more relationship based. It's not right or wrong, it's what works best for you. And you having some insight in how you communicate best and trying to figure out is the structure of the clinic and how that doctor communicates and their team communicates, is that going to work the best for you? Um, Where I did my IVF, it was very transactional. I am a very relationship-based person. (laughs) And I remember the day I flew across the country, went and got an ultrasound, got a phone call from a nurse, and I'm in a hotel room like bawling my eyes out. And I was crying because the communication wasn't what I needed. I mean, I knew what was all going on, but it was like, but I thought this. And it was like, oh no, it's this. And I'm like, "Mm, pretty sure like we had a communication issue and I ended up with the result I wanted, but my journey wasn't necessarily what I wanted. And that is so important. Good information today. Well, to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. We'd really love to hear from you. And you can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook. So hop on and leave us a comment. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. We also love episode ideas. So let us know what you're thinking and want to hear. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. John, thank you so much for joining us today. We are so happy that we had you on. Of Um, course. All right, everybody. We'll see you next week. Tune in soon. Bye. Bye. 
Today's podcast is also brought to you by Theralogics. Theranatal Fertility Supplement Ovavite includes optimal absorption CoQ10 formulated to support healthy egg quality in women going through IVF or any woman preparing for pregnancy in her 30s and beyond. Ovavite is independently tested and certified by NSF International. 